Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Well, welcome to part two of our evening. Uh, This is the panel discussion. Uh, If you see me looking at my phone, I am not playing Angry Birds. I am looking to the questions that are coming to me uh, via the number up there. And so if you have additional questions that you would like to uh, put forward to be uh, considered for our panel, uh, feel free to do that. They will be vetted uh, and sent to me. Uh, but I would like to introduce uh, the panel of people. Uh, I, like I said, I am very excited about this panel. Uh, and so we have Mark Cheltingham, uh, who is at our North Raleigh campus and is a contract psychiatrist and uh, just been a good friend, somebody who every time we have a conversation, I feel both challenged and encouraged. And uh, that is uh, just a real treat. Uh, Becky Jorgensen, uh, who is a... Uh, trauma specialist, also works with children, is at Mosaic Counseling in Cary. Did I get that correct? Raleigh? And so uh, she'll be speaking from a trauma perspective. Uh, We have Caroline Von Helm, who is one of the staff counselors at Bridgehaven Counseling Associates, a parachurch counseling center that Summit helped to launch. Uh, So she'll be speaking from uh, working with a kid's perspective. Uh, Chris Ball, who is also at our downtown Raleigh Bridgehaven office. Uh, Prior to becoming a part of Bridgehaven, he spent several years working in a residential addiction facility, so he'll be bringing an addictions perspective. And then Carla Siu, uh, who's with El Futuro and a licensed clinical social worker, uh, she'll be bringing uh, that perspective to us. Uh, So with that being said, uh, first question, uh, don't be nice. What would you say differently? What would you change? What would you nuance? What would you want to clarify uh, for these folks to be as informed uh, and equipped uh, to think through, care for one another well uh, in this subject area? You're on. Um, In in terms of commenting on your your presentation, I I really enjoyed it. I agreed with the majority of it. Um, um, And and I'm glad that you opened up um, our church and um, use this forum as a, as, a, as, a, as a platform to discuss mental illness and the stigma uh, that's attached with it. Um, in terms of, of critiquing your presentation, the only thing I would disagree with would, would be your Venn diagram and the, the separation into the three different categories. Um, really, I, I couldn't find a separation for any of them if, if I argued hard enough. Uh, one of the things that my, my patients are, are, are most surprised about when they come in and they ask me, well, what causes schizophrenia? What causes depression? What causes bipolar disorder? And I have to be honest with them and tell them that we don't know. Um, we only have working theories. And, and right now, as Brad correctly stated in his presentation, our prescriptive science um, is, is, is farther along than our diagnostic science. We don't understand yet the pathophysiology of any mental illness. Uh, so that's why it's, it's so important uh, that we walk alongside our, our patients, our consumers, our clients, however you want to define them, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our husbands, our wives. 
uh, walk alongside them uh, with, with grace and compassion, um, where, 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 um, and, and that we treat them um, with the love that they deserve. Um, and so um, that'd be the only thing I'd disagree with it, um, because it's very hard to make those distinctions. Uh, the one distinction you make about glandular illnesses like the thyroid, um, how, it, how, it, how it emanates from the body, um, but it's controlled by the hypothalamus in the brain. And so, so making these fine lines in mental illness is very hard to do. Uh, mental illness occurs more along uh, a, a continuum or a spectrum. Um, mental illnesses overlap. People who have depression commonly have anxiety disorders. Uh, schizophrenia results in depression, and so on and so forth. And so, so um, people generally need a lot of patience, a lot of education, um, and support as they go through uh, their illness. Um, but that'd be my only critique. Other than that, I thought it was wonderful. Again, thank you for the critique. That's what we want. So please. Yeah, I would um, tend to agree with Mark um, that um, I thought as a whole this was absolutely fabulous, and I am really grateful to you, Brad, for bringing this to the attention of the church. I think oftentimes it goes completely um, disregarded, and it can be shamed, um, and people often do not seek um, treatment and not seek help because they feel um, like they'll be looked upon um, in a derogatory way. And so um, I think one thing that um, when we look at our makeup as human beings, we are biological, we're physical, we are spiritual, and we're social beings, um, biopsychosocio-spiritual, and that's seen even in scripture. Um, And so what you were talking about with the overlap, um, sometimes we can't pinpoint a root cause um, as far as where a mental illness comes from. I think there are ways that we can narrow it down and we can say, okay, yeah, maybe the fact that this is happening is, is because you're not getting enough sleep. Or, you know, sometimes it can be narrowed down, but sometimes we can't pinpoint something. There may be multiple influences that can't be narrowed down to one specific thing and can't be pinpointed to a particular, um, whether it's just volition or just this or just this. But I think the idea of everything almost always overlaps in some way, shape, or form. Um, so, yeah, but otherwise I thought it was really, really well thought out and put together. So thanks, Brad. Absolutely. Um, I think the thing that I would add from the area of children is that you cannot negate development and that children it's not that simple for them because they have all of those influences at one time and they could grow out of behaviors, they could grow out of things and that's what's so important and typically with parents I always start with, have you been to the pediatrician? Have you ruled out the biology behind maybe some of these behaviors? Because for children, behaviors have meaning. It's not just their choice a lot of times. It's a symptom of a much deeper problem. And so parents want to come in a lot of times and they're like, just stop the behavior. Well, you've got to figure out why the behavior's happening first. And so the biology for children, I think, is a huge component to rule out before you address probably the environmental and the choices that the child are making. So I... I appreciated uh, your emphasis on humility in in terms of the intent. I agree with um, Mark's critique about um, it's easy in theory to kind of separate and distinguish the different components 
and and in reality there's a there's a unity or, or a cohesion um, that makes things more complex to j- kind of dissect and chop up. Um, in addition to that, I, I too took notes on my phone, so I'm not checking Facebook here. Um, the in terms of the implications that you drew out, I, I believe you listed mental, social, and emotional. I would add that there's often um, uh, biological implications as well in terms of stuff like fatigue and um, you mentioned uh, spiritual implications later on um, also the in terms of the symptoms and I like the distinction between syndrome and disease um, but a, another um, distinction that I would make is that the symptoms are often systemic in in the pattern as opposed to I, th- I don't remember the exact verbiage but um, in terms of everybody experiences it to some degree or some level, I think the a clarification would be that these are systemic symptoms over a period of time, and you outlined that in terms of duration. Um, and then, um, finally, the impact on the commonality of all these different components, the impact on our perceptions in terms of the way that we um, assess and evaluate and interpret um, because of that complicated unity that's really affecting the way that we interpret and um, because of that that's confusing even to be able to separate or explain what's going on in terms of the symptoms. Um, Fred, I agree with <coughs> what's been said here um, tonight and definitely agree with the Venn diagram. I think that was actually one of the areas where I disagreed as well. Um, mm-hmm. And mostly because I saw a lot of overlap in all the different areas. So I won't say more to that. I think that the place of emphasis that I wanted to kind of add, I always want to make, make you know, some of the arguments you're making simpler, and I always kind of go to adding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I basically think that, you know, the way that we engage the question oftentimes is one of causation and, you know, what causes blank. Um, and th- that is laden with with our propensity to judge. And when we ask these causational questions, what ends up happening naturally with us is that we stop our observational qualities. Um, And I think that bringing up children and saying behavior, if I could just categorize that behavior, then I could engage with that person. I think that what I would want to add is we may not have to fully appreciate and understand exactly what's going on before we can relate and engage relationally with a person um, in the vein of friendship that you talked about at the end. Um, And I think that that is a good place to start. I think that's one of the things I'd like to add. And so one of the conversations you and I have had on many occasions is that Eastern Western mindset where I like to compartmentalize things and try to neatly divide them. And then we're people who are embodied souls, and one part of our life affects the whole. And so um, it, uh, I think those are excellent points. Uh, the idea that uh, what we know, or at least think we know, blinds us to what we don't know and what we stop asking. Uh, and oftentimes when, uh, when we gain confidence in one area, it just it stops the observational learning process. Uh, love all of that. So... Um, I think those are excellent emphases. And so the next question, Caroline kind of got a jump start on us, um, but 
from your area that you work, uh, maybe predominantly or in your full-time job or however you want to think about that, uh, what are some of the things, like Caroline mentioned with children, where development plays such an important role of thinking through these kinds of things? What are some of the things from psychiatry or trauma, addiction, social work, or something else from children uh, that you would think, this just be important for a crowd like this to think through? And whoever wants to jump in first won't necessarily make Mark go first again. I can go. Um, so I think one of the things that um, when it comes to trauma is just what is trauma in general. Um, and I think there are a couple of different categories. But as a whole, trauma is really any experience in anybody's life that raises the stress level in a negative way for a prolonged period of time and has a negative consequence or a negative impact on their life. Um, and so, you know, a lot of therapists will classify trauma as big T and little t, and most people tend to think of trauma in the context of big T, and that those are things like abuse, those are things like domestic violence or rape or natural disaster or near-death near experience. Um, those are big T's, and I think everybody in this room would probably agree that, that, yeah, those are traumatic events. But then we also have things like small T traumas, um, and small T traumas are um, experienced as big T traumas by an individual, but they're more like the normal everyday things that occur. Um, maybe the natural death of a loved one, um, a grandfather, a grandma. Um, it may be um, seeing somebody else hurt. It may be the exposure to a disaster or a widespread um, violent act. I can't even begin to tell you um, that I think it was within a week of um, the Sandy Hook Elementary shootings, I had nine phone calls from families whose kids had just heard about it and they were refusing to go to school. Um, and so, you know, this was horrifying. It was horrifying for us as adults, but children, it was terrifying um, to them to think about going to school and the questions that they had. Um, but um, just from a brain perspective, so I love the brain. I love learning about the brain. And when it comes to trauma, um, Dan Siegel is one of my favorite um, I, I just, I look up to him a lot, but he, he has this model of the brain, and so if you guys were to just go like this with your hand um, and make a fist tucking your thumb under um, your forefingers, and um, if you were to look at the wrist, that would be your brain stem, and that is the reptilian part of the brain. It is where our autonomic nervous system sits. Um, it's the part of the brain that typically a little stronger in males. It's how can I survive? When am I going to get my next meal? How am I going to get my next meal? Um, uh, uh, uh. Right. Oh. <laughs> and then, um, so that's the reptilian part of the brain. Then you've got your thumb, which is where the hippocampus, it's the limbic system. It's where the hippocampus, the amygdala sits, and other parts of the brain that are responsible for emotion. This is where um, women typically um, experience a little more strength. And then you've got this part of your fingers that come down and fold over, and that is the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that is where we're going to think through things logically. It's what Brad was talking about with that frontal lobe. Um, so when we experience trauma, we um, experience an increase in adrenaline, and we experience an increase in cortisol. And both of those make the prefrontal cortex kind of spike and go like this, 
So what's left exposed is the emotional part of the brain. And so we experience a significant amount of fear, which triggers an autonomic nervous response from the, the sympathetic nervous system, right? Okay. The sympathetic, just making sure. Um, I was doing my notes while you were talking. So the sympathetic nervous system, which is where um, you, you've heard about people who have been able to lift cars or who have been able to run away from things or do extraordinary things that under normal circumstances they would probably never be able to do. Well, that is the result of adrenaline, and that's the result of the cortisol that their body is producing because of the fear that they're experiencing. So when people live in a state like this, they will often develop a lot of habits and a lot of behaviors to cope with living in this hyper-aroused state or this fear state. You may see individuals who are extremely like, who did that? What happened? You might see jumpiness. You might see, um, and you could probably speak a little bit more to what's seen in children. Um, I work mostly with teenagers and with young adults. Um, but you're going to see this hyper-aroused state. And sometimes when people live in this state for long enough, they begin to start searching for thrill-increasing um, behaviors. So behaviors like drugs or alcohol or behaviors um, such as um, hyper, what was that? Sky, skydiving. Um, you know, but they're going to engage in these thrill-seeking behaviors because they don't know any other way to live. And so they're constantly trying to live in this state. And so as counselors, as psychiatrists, as practitioners, you know, um, as friends, helping them return back to this place and engaging the parasympathetic nervous system, which is helping us stay in that state of homeostasis, um, where we're, we're stable um, from a physical perspective, can help us to engage in um, exploring things from volition, exploring things from a choice perspective, exploring things from um, physical, emotional, and spiritual and social perspectives. Um, but I think sometimes just even having an understanding of what does the brain actually do when we are traumatized or when we're stressed. I mean, I, I work with teenagers, and I have a lot of teenagers who come at the end of the school day, and one of the first things that we do at the end of that school day is they're coming into me in a state of complete arousal. So we just start working on some things that they can do to get back to this state because we're in this state. When they're in this state, I can have a conversation with them. We can talk, but when they're in this state, no amount of rational conversation is ever going to work. And I see that all the time. I work with human trafficking survivors. I see that all the time where they continue to engage in thrill-seeking behaviors even after being pulled out of the environment where they're in danger. So um, anyway, that's what I would say about trauma is just understanding that that's um, a model of how the brain works. And I think it's a great tool um, for kids, for teenagers, for adults. They understand this. You know, I need some time to get back, to put my thinking cap back on. So I think every parent is going to go home to their kids and go. (laughs) 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 Kind of along with that, I like Dan Siegel too. He is a great researcher. But one of the things, especially relating to children and even adolescents, to keep in mind, and it goes back to what I was saying earlier, because I feel like parents forget this a lot, that their kids are still developing. The brain actually develops front to back. The front is the last part of your brain to develop. 
and that's where you make all your decisions. It finishes developing around the age of 22. Okay, so if you think about the decisions you're making and your children have made by the time they're 22, that's a little scary to think they're making it with a non-fully developed brain, but they are. So our goal as parents in this process Explains is... a lot. It's <laughs> 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 comforting, good, okay. But is to aid them and continue to aid them as they journey to adulthood. Like 15, they're not there. They're still forgetful. Like you can't continue to relate to them like they're finished, like they're done, like they've achieved what they're going to achieve, because they haven't. So when you think about the mental illness portion, if you have a traumatic event that has happened to a child, it's going to affect the way that they do develop and the way that they perceive things like Chris was talking about and the way that they interpret other people's emotions and behaviors. And so our goal as a church and as to help parents is to help teach them truth and how to live in truth and that feelings can be real, but feelings aren't true. That's not where we get our source and strength of truth. That just because emotions are there and emotions aren't bad, we can't be emotionally driven. Like teaching that there's a balance to life and that they're not going to get that by the time they reach high school. They probably aren't going to get it by the time they reach college. So my encouragement to parents is stay the course. I think I um, would add also that sometimes when we talk about the brain, and there seems to be an explanation as to why things are the way that they are. And I think that there's a balance that needs to go also for us as the church to kind of go the other side and understand also that the brain is malleable and that there isn't, um, it's kind of like going back to, you know, which came first, right? <laughs> um, and so I think that we also need to understand this research within the understanding that God is sovereign and powerful and that he does have, um, you know, sovereignty over our bodies and healing. Um, and I think that that's also something that we need to bring into the conversation because as um, a social worker, I also work a lot with trauma and a lot of things happen. And I think that it's important to recognize God as um, also a part of the healing team, <laughs> if not the beginning and the end of that team, you know? <laughs> and I think where we, we also really, as a counselor, I don't have all the answers. Um, as an MD, I may not have all the answers. As a pastor, I don't have all the answers. But really to really understand that God um, cares deeply for the biology and everything um, that's going on. And so this is a social worker in me thinking about the person in the environment, but also <laughs> the greater environment, you know, thinking about God um, above all things and, and in and all things. And I think that I've gotten the chance to see God at work in some pretty severe <laughs> cases that my rational brain says, and even my educated brain says, there is no way that that person with all of this programming for 10 to 15 years would make X or Y decision, you know? And so as we talk about volition, I don't want to negate volition out of this question because I've seen women um, who have been trafficked um, and maybe for, you know, 10, 15 years in horrendous situations, make decisions that are so 
courageous and brave, and they do it sometimes out of a greater understanding um, that goes beyond themselves. And so I just really want to speak to that and just how God can operate in ways that go beyond, um, even when I say I, that person cannot understand this concept that I am giving because their brain cannot understand that, um, I have seen God break through that in ways that are really wonderful. Um, so I just want to. Addiction and mental illness have a historic relationship um, in terms of being under the umbrella of mental illness or being competitive against um, or being its own kind of category. Um, And obviously, I think that there's a ton of of overlap of some of the things that we've already discussed in terms of the comprehensive, um, the various factors that go into mental illness. There's there's also some additional ones in terms of a, a foreign substance involve a relationship with a substance or a behavior. Um, that uh, The idea of habit, I think, is lost in our culture. Um, and, and habit really integrates some of the things that we're talking about. And you mentioned the neural pathways, and so there's a, there's a behavioral, there's a volitional, there's a mental um, rhythm. To, to habit that goes into um, addiction. And so there's, unfortunately, in a public policy sense, I think in an economic sense, there's a lot of rivalry between um, mental illness and addiction at times. Um, and, and those of you that have tried to navigate that at, uh, in the healthcare system can have firsthand experience as to how disconnected some of... Uh, those categories can be. And so um, I think that in terms of the church, having open conversations like this and being able to discuss the complexities of it, and, and not just in a stigma sense, but in terms of how to, to care for people well, and it doesn't have to be maybe, there's doesn't maybe have to be to some of the levels and intensities that um, maybe some of us up here represent, but just kind of at a ground level grassroots of what it looks like to care for people well, um, whether it's mental illness or addiction, is applicable. Uh, just to, to tie some things together, um, when, um, when Becky was talking about trauma um, and, and Chris was talking about experience and perception, um, what I generally tell patients is that experience isn't what happens to you. It's how you perceive what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. Um, so generally, I try to walk them through some stories that illustrate that. I won't do that now for the sake of time. Um, but, but I think it's very important, um, and, and Chris talked about our, our perception of those things. Just because you experience a trauma doesn't mean you go on to experience acute traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, there are a lot of other variables that go into play because of that. Um, and and when, we, when we share scientific findings with you, um, by no means do I want you to, to, to take that as, as dogma and, 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 and not hold your kids accountable because they, their brain hasn't matured until 22. Um, um, as, 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 and, and, and I know, I know Caroline's not, Caroline's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I know, and I know Caroline's not saying that, but so many, so many patients um, are, are, are coming into the office looking for answers, and they'll hang on those words. They'll hang on the diagnosis that you give them. They'll use it as an excuse 
or they'll use it as a crutch. There are so many different um, secondary reasons why people come to see a psychiatrist or, or therapist and get a diagnosis. Um, some people come out of sheer loneliness, and, 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 and that's something that we have to address in the body of Christ in terms of reaching out to people um, and, and staying connected and, and people, keeping people close to the body. Um, and, and so, so I just want to want to balance that by, by saying that. Um, and, and as Christians, we still have to keep you know God's word first and how we see things. Um, science is going to change right now. Uh, Caroline quoted the age of 22 as when the brain stops maturing. Um, I heard 24 and 29. 24 for women because women have estrogen and it's found to be protective and nurturing, and 29 for men because we're slow. But. Um, <laughs> But uh-huh. hey, it's, it's, it's really comforting. <laughs> they, they, they develop emotionally, spiritually, socially so much faster than we do. Um, but, um, but, but moving forward, um, but, but 20 years from now, that, that may be, it'll be a different age. And what we're finding now is that the brain, is, as, as Carla said, is so modifiable, so malleable. It's, it's the most modifiable organ in, 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 your, in your body. It's only 3.3 pounds, uh, but it has over 100 billion nerve cells with over a trillion connections. And to put that in context, um, our galaxy, the Milky Way, only has 400 billion stars. So there are more connections in your brain in 3.3 pounds, or 3.5 pounds, like Brad said, than there are in, 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 the, in the Milky Way, stars in the Milky Way. So it, it's, a, it's a miraculous organ, and as, as fearfully and as wonderfully as we're made and as complex as your brain is, it will break down because of the effects of sin. Everyone in this room has been physically sick with some illness or another. Is there an exception in the room? Okay. Just, just checking. Sometimes there is, but just checking. And um, at least people believe there is. But, but since we've all been physically sick, we can all become emotionally and, and mentally ill. Um, and, and because we're justified in Christ alone, uh, I don't want people to feel the stigma. And, and I think we feel the stigma because we think there's something else that justifies us besides Christ. Um, it's, it's whether I'm strong and independent and morally upright and don't take meds and have never been arrested and I'm always faithful to my wife, and, and, and things of that nature, but none of that justifies us. It, it's the finished work of Christ. So, so we're all, in, all of us in here are broken. All of us in here need the, the love of our Savior, and, and, and we need to, to show that to each other as we walk through any issue in life. We could have a, a, a conference on the Christian perspective on politics, on education, but the answers would still be the same. We'd still have to look for Christ. There would still be confusion in that arena because there's going to be confusion un, until he calls us home. And so I just want to encourage you in that to, to balance what you hear from us and, and always use your common sense um, in, in what you're doing. Um, as Brad said, when doctors, my, my little brother just got diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, the doctor gave him one treatment, and it was steroids. He, there was no talk about anything else about how to proceed with the diagnosis, how the diagnosis is going to impact his life, what other things he can do to deal with it. And so when there's all, only one solution, then, then just look beyond that. And, and, and that's not... I don't, I don't mean to speak poorly about the medical profession, but we've been so compartmentalized and specialized by, by outside forces, administration, prime, um, um, administration, managed care, and things of that nature. That, that as, for me as a psychiatrist, I'm seen as just the medication guy. And, um, and there's so much more to those interactions than just medications. So I just want to encourage you. I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions, and I'm, I'm very thankful to be here. I'm honored to be part of the panel and, and to be speaking with everyone. Um, and, and, and just honored to be here uh, under the Sam, Sam Jones Institute. Uh, I just wanted to read his book beforehand. I just want to recommend it. I didn't know who Sam Jones was before I came. <laughs> and uh, his book is wonderful, A Servant uh, on the Edge of History. It's just a wonderful read. I was hoping he'd be here so he could autograph it. <laughs> but I, I don't see him. 
so I just want to encourage you, and we look forward to your questions. Thank you. Eric Stewart will forge the signature if you need it. Um, so I want to give some, maybe some kind of rapid-fire questions that we've gotten from the audience. I really like some of the questions. Um, we can have one or two people respond on each one of those. Uh, one of the questions was um, just uh, oftentimes when somebody is really struggling and we're with them, uh, we feel down afterwards. Um, you know, we, part of bearing the burden with them is we carry part of the load and that lingers with us. Um, how do we do that well? What have you found to be particularly effective there? I'm going to take a stab at that. Um, I work with 12 counselors and we get together to talk every month about the cases that they work with and then one of them one day said and gave this image of walking into the dark place um, with them. And that really reminded me of what Christ does when um, he comes down. And, um, and my agency is not a Christian agency, but that image was still very powerful for me as a Christian. And I have been thinking a lot about that, you know, different books and different ways that we've talked about that. The Wounded Healer um, by Henry Nouwen and just that concept of the fact that we can't really get close to hurt without engaging it. Um, but Bible also says, you know, be careful that you do not fall also. And so I think that there's a balance between that that says, you know, we want to enter in, we want to walk as a friend um, with someone, um, but at the same time, we have to take care of ourselves. And so um, figuring out, you know, what you need to do for health also, you know, um, my husband astutely said, well, where does it end? Um, who helps the helper, you know? And I said, well, the beauty of it is that I think we all need help. And going back to what Mark was saying, I think that's actually the context in which help is given. And so what I would encourage you to do is, you know, you don't disclose the things that people confide in you, um, but you also find care for yourself um, in some capacity that you are energized. One of my supervisors at Duke said to me, you know, you got to do the depression dance after you leave the, the room because if you don't do the depression dance, it's going to stick to you. And that first, first year of internship, I thought that's, I don't know, that's kind of crazy. But um, after a while, I was just like, you know, what she's saying is go do something that switches the way that you're encountering um, you mind that showing situation. us the depression dance? We would all like to learn. That's, that's for later for the after party. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, so. Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of helping people out of one's own weakness. And I, th I think that there's a... Um, there has to be regular rhythms of, of refreshment in one's own life um, or there's not going to be consistent sustainability in, in your capacity to, to help other people well. But I think recognizing that that's part of the deal in, in what you just described, that that's kind of part and parcel of um, engaging people that are, that are hurting, um, just the awareness of that, that that's not some sort of abnormal side effect and being able to lean into that. Um, and, and, and those are the times that we're often strengthened in our weakness. Another question that I got in several different versions um, was uh, if you have a loved one, a friend, uh, who is struggling in a way that they don't want to acknowledge, um, that is fearfully overwhelming for them, um, 
or they just they acknowledge it, but they're not willing to get help. Um, maybe it's a parent who is getting the early stages of dementia and doesn't, you know, the fearfulness of I can't trust my own thoughts is there. Uh, maybe it's a particular struggle that uh, they don't want to acknowledge it's addiction or uh, something with bipolar. And how can you love well in that interval between we can see it, at least decently confident we can tell something's going on, whether we can pin the diagnosis on the person or not. We, we feel like we're in that domain and they're not ready to reach out for help. How do we love well in the gap? Well, there's a balance uh, to that. Um, I see it a lot um, in the scenarios that you suggested. Um, I think we can, we can be gracious with people if, if they're not at a point where they're going to hurt themselves or hurt others. Um, we can be very gracious and patient and walk with them through it and, and, and still be um, supportive of the person and not necessarily the, the behavior. Um, but, but one of the gracious, most gracious things we can do for people when they're at a point where they, they could harm themselves or harm others is to confront them. Uh, to confront them lovingly and, and kindly and patiently. Um, and, and, and so I, I don't want people to get to the point where they burn out. Uh, if they do feel overwhelmed by those things, there are a lot of services available. There, there are crisis hotlines. There are support groups. Um, there, 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 there's an involuntary commitment you can do for a loved one who's, who's in imminent danger of hurting themselves or others. Um, maybe they're, they're starving themselves to death because of their depression or, or, or dementia or things of that nature. Um, but there, there, there are means by which you can you can um, bring a person to help. Um, but I wouldn't um, do that unless it's, it's actually, uh, you get the opinion of others, you incorporate others' uh, viewpoints or perspective on it. Uh, because I've seen parents and their desire to, to love their children who are in addiction or have illness, commit them to the hospital before they're ready for help. And like you mentioned, the, the uh, prodigal son, um, he, he, he was ready to come to his senses because he was in the pigsty, uh, but they still might, might be caught uh, wherever they are and, and they might not be ready to change. It only pushes them further away uh, a lot of times is what I've seen into their addiction or into their, their illness. So it's a fine balance, but there are, are resources available in, in times of urgent need. Um, I think sometimes, especially with children, we can value rules more than the relationship, especially in the areas of like addiction or if our child is making choices that in their lifestyle we don't necessarily support. And so we can become so fixated on wanting to get them help to get out of this pattern of behavior that they're in that we are forgetting the relationship and that probably what is needed is longevity um, and endurance with them more than sometimes truth speaking um, because you can speak the truth in love and remain open to the relationship. Um, and that is hard for us as friends, as parents, as children of people. <laughs> um, it's hard to, to do that, but the relationship is really what it's about because it's through our relationships, and Carla was speaking to this, that that's where you're going to get to know people. It's not through what you want them to do or how you want them to act. Like you, the relationship is what the rules are, are based out of, and it's how you get to know one another. Um, so I feel like above all else in those situations, 
guarding the relationship first versus pushing your agenda of wanting to get them help. Because when you start pushing your agenda of wanting to get them help, they're going to close off. But you can voice that and speak that, and they can know that's what you want and still maintain the relationship. And that's what's going to eventually last. I'll raise a similar question. Uh, So it's kind of in the same vein. Some of you may have some thoughts uh, in that area. Um, A small group. Uh, They're caring for somebody in that befriending one another role. Uh, They can tell somebody is hurting. Um, Again, they're somewhere on that spectrum between maybe not quite ready to get help, engaging help, early stages where it's still, um, it feels tenuous. Uh, What are some ways to be a good friend? Uh, What would you advocate as far as do's or don'ts at that level of being a quality friend? I think one thing is don't try to figure it out. Um, You know, I think sometimes when we try to, like, nitpick all the details or explain it away, that can be really damaging. I think as a friend, one of the first first things that I would suggest is assess their safety. Like, are they safe? Like, um, if you're concerned that they're going to go home and hurt themselves, um, you know, if if it's a suicidal threat or a threat to somebody else, that's one thing. Um, If they're hurting and it's, deep grief or you sense that it may be depression but there's not really any threat to their own harm or the harm of somebody else um, then listen I think listening is one of the the biggest things that we can do get their perspective and sometimes not saying anything at all Um, asking what do they need Um, I think even as a counselor you know sometimes I sit there and I'm like okay I know exactly what would be helpful in this situation but I'm not going to tell you Um, and I'll just sit there and I'll say, okay, what, what, what do you need right now? What do you need from me? How can I be helpful to you? Um, and just asking those questions sometimes will get them thinking about what they need. Um, so um, I think that's one thing that you can do as a friend um, and not necessarily try to figure it out and offer solutions or fix it. Sometimes just saying, I'm going to be there with you um, in whatever it is. And if you need something from me or you need something from somebody else, I'll go with you if you need me to do that. I think what I would add to that, I absolutely agree. Um, Listening, I think, is a very difficult thing to do. (laughs) Um, I try to train people in counseling how to do that, and sometimes it's pure comedy because it's it's hard. It's hard, and we don't... Exactly. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to start there, but I think that we often think in a horizontal vein in terms of listening, and I think we start with listening to the Holy Spirit. And the f- only place we can do that is in prayer. And I think that we underestimate in this age <laughs> the power of prayer and really just surrendering these things that we think we see in others because we're good diagnosticians of what's going on in somebody else's life, and sometimes in prayer, the Holy Spirit will show you some things about things you can do, things you can say, um, or maybe ways that you may be overly critical about a lifestyle or something that may be going on that you don't understand anything about, and there's a reason for that. And so I think I would want to add that prayer is really, to me, the beginning of listening, is listening to God first, 
and then interceding for the specific needs. And sometimes prayer, not just, you know, alone, but if you're in a small group, then pray together. I have seen addictions, you know, of 10 years, people bringing them before the Lord. And um, sometimes people say, well, if I get no answer within the first year, two years, three years, then I quit praying about it as if God's not listening. Um, I happen to know one person pretty well that it took 10 years of that, prayer and intercessory prayer for that to break. And so I would just want to really encourage us to lean in to the Lord before we help others. <laughs> One thing I wanted to add really quickly is if you find yourself um, having animosity towards the person you're trying to help, or if the small group is arguing about um, how to help that person, or if there's more tension or confusion, then there is peace in the process. Uh, like Carla said, um, go, to, go in prayer. But if you see these signs, it's called, it's called counter-transference. It's when we've taken it on in an unhealthy way, and we're projecting it back onto the person we're trying to help. And so it, it'd be important once you see that in yourself to, to look outside the small group for help and to realize that you're trying to do it in your strength and not in God's. Um, so one question, just a quick response from each of you. I had a question. What would be a good book? Uh, you mentioned Wounded Healer by Henry Nowen. Um, if you had to recommend one book on the subject if somebody wanted to read further, what kind of things would you recommend? Instrument in the Redeemer's Hand. <laughs> Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, Paul Tripp. Um, mental illness, the kind of subject we've been talking about tonight, the Bible. Um, You didn't give us a heads up on this one. Just got it. <laughs> Go. How People Change is, is a really good book in, in, in terms of reaching out and helping people. And the premise is that we, we change by grace. And, uh, and it's what changed us and, and brought us back to Christ. Um, and, and that'd be the book I'd recommend. So a really good kid book um, is by a guy named Ross Campbell, and it's called How to Really Love Your Child. Um, You have an angry child. He has one, How to Really Love Your Angry Child, um, which talks a lot about anger, but he is a Christian, and he is a psychiatrist that comes from a Christian's perspective. It's really good. Um, I would say really anything by Diane Langberg is great on trauma. Um, She's one of my all-time favorites. Um, Rosenberg, I don't know how you say his first name, or I don't remember what his first name is, but it's R-O-S-E-N-B-E-U-R-G. Doug? Um, thank you. Um, so he's great. Um, and then The Wounded Heart um, by Dan Allender is a great one for um, childhood sexual abuse. So those are all great resources. Um, Addiction and Virtue by Kent. Dunnington would probably be my favorite. Uh, yeah, and a couple of that I would put out there. Uh, Ed Welch has a book, Blame It on the Brain, uh, where he looks at several different aspects of the kinds of things we've been talking about and distinguishing how much does our physical body play in a role, what is that body-soul relationship. Uh, and there's a psychiatrist, I'm forgetting his name, but his book is Rescuing Normal. Uh, He was one of the contributors to the DSM when it was being written. Uh, And basically, as somebody from a secular perspective saying, okay, 
we can diagnose everything, how can we rescue normal uh, so that we don't diagnose everything that we do? Uh, and so this is going to conclude our time for the evening. Uh, can you join me in saying thank you to these guys for being here tonight? You know, some of the things that I hope that we got from the evening uh, is a greater level of comfort with an uncomfortable subject. Uh, a sense of, um, you know, what kind of conversations would I have if counseling was beneficial? Uh, if you're interested in some of the things that we offer here at the church, uh, it's as simple as seminardu.com backslash counseling. Uh, very clever, uh, the way that we put that on the back end there. Uh, that has the resources that we offer as a church. Uh, but if you would, Mark, uh, would you pray for us and then say you are sent so we know we can get out of our seats. How many counselors does it take to turn on a microphone? Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather together, Lord. Um, we praise your holy name. Uh, we thank you, God, that, that you've comforted us in our comfort so we may be able to comfort others with the comfort which we have received from you. Uh, so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Summit, you are sent.